You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayer is that this encourages you in the Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can have already seen, this is the service for those who are either too broke or too old to be at the beach because evidently that's where everybody else is at. Uh, we had to go to the bullpen and get Tory to make the opening announcements, and I'm doing the preaching because the A-team, all everybody except for Joseph, is down there with where the sand and the sun and so forth is. And uh, but they took a good group. We had a good group of youth down there, and uh, hopefully they'll be coming back tomorrow. So you pray the Lord to keep them safe and get them back home and. Uh, hopefully Zach didn't get too bad sunburned and he'll be able to function uh, when he gets back. All right, today we are in uh, Acts chapter 8 and we are going to try and cover the whole chapter and it's a, uh, a very uh, lengthy passage. It's a very busy passage. It has some for lack of a better term, it's got some theological issues in it, and uh, we're not going to skirt them. We'll try to deal with them uh, the best we can, uh, but we've got a long way to go. We've got to leave Jerusalem. Uh, we've got to go to Samaria. Then we've got to go back to Jerusalem. Then we've got to go south again toward Ethiopia and end up north in Caesarea. So uh, we've got a lot of traveling to do. We can't make many pit stops, and if we do, we can't stay very long when we make a pit stop. But we'll try to get through them. I'm going to divide it up into two sections uh, for us this morning. The first section will be a brief section. It's verses 1 through 8. And I've entitled that first section, What God Decrees, God Does. What God Decrees, God Does. So let's look at those first eight verses in Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, referring back to the execution of Stephen that we covered last week. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. What God decrees, God does. And actually the book of Acts is the fulfillment of a decree. The Bible's full of decrees in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A decree is simply a declaration by somebody who has authority that sets in motion an activity or responsibility to be performed or an ordinance to be followed. For example, in the, in the book of Daniel, we see a decree. Some of you are familiar with a story where the opponents of, 
Daniel and his friends uh, went to, to the king and had the king issue a decree because they wanted to catch Daniel and those in violation of that decree. And we read of that decree in Daniel chapter 3, verse 10, where they came to him and they said, You, O king, have made a decree. You've made a declaration, in other words. That every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And so this king had set this decree, and of course they caught Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in violation of that decree because as God's people, they wouldn't bow down to anybody except God. And you remember the story, they were put in the furnace, and, and the scripture says that God protected them to the point that after they came out of the furnace, they didn't even have any smoke. You couldn't smell anything about them. But that was a, that's an example of a decree. In the New Testament, Luke's account of the gospel, in second chapter, verse 1, he refers to a decree. It says, in those, decree, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And you know that God used that decree to bring Joseph and Mary to the town of Bethlehem to, to be registered for taxes, and that's where uh, the baby Jesus was born. Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus issues a decree. And like I said, the, the whole remainder of the book of Acts is the fulfillment of that decree through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in Acts 1.8. Here's his decree. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And listen, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's the decree of Jesus to his followers, to his uh, apostles, and to those that would follow the apostles. He said, you're going to be a witness. And you're not just going to be a witness here where you live. You're going to be a witness in Samaria. And you're going to be a witness to the end of the earth. So we see in these first eight verses of chapter 8 the fulfillment of that. We see how Jesus does and performs and brings about the decree he has issued. And the first means he does to do, that, to do that is the means of persecution. Our text says that after the death of Stephen and with the ravaging of, of, of Saul locking up believers and putting them in prison and so forth, it says that the believers were scattered. And that term scattered is an agricultural term. It refers to how a farmer in Jesus' day scattered seed. They didn't farm in Jesus' day, they didn't have the equipment we have today, to, to like tractors and so forth, to, to plow rows, and they didn't have the, the tools to do it. So when a farmer planted his crop in Jesus' day, he, he just simply went out among his land and scattered seed. Jesus even tells a parable uh, in the Gospels about some, a farmer who sowed seed. Some of it took good ground, some of it took bad ground. But that's the term, it's scattered. They were scattered in fear uh, after the death of Stephen. They, they were scared because of the actions of Saul and his persecution. And, and it's glorious, it, it's good news that Jesus used persecution to spread the gospel message, to send the believers away from Jerusalem out into the other parts of the world. And we're thankful for that because if that had not happened, quite honestly, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today if the message had not have spread. But even though it's good news, I want to pause and, 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 and remind you folks that this persecution was not, it was not a pleasurable thing. This was not something they were 
happy to do. This persecution was terrible. They, they had to leave their homes, their, the, the lands that they, most of them had been raised in. They had to sometimes leave their families. And they left after the execution of Stephen. And the Bible says devout men made lamentations because of the death of Stephen. Now I'm afraid sometimes in the church we try to encourage those who have lost loved ones to the point that we forget to realize that when we lose a loved one we're in grief. There's sorrow. There's brokenness in our heart. You know, when someone we love dies, there's a pain there. And that pain expresses itself in grief. And so even though the Scripture gladly tells us as believers that we don't grieve as others who have no hope because of the hope we have in Jesus, we still nevertheless grieve. Persecution was not a joyful experience. And persecution still happens today. We, it's hard for us to identify with real persecution living where we live. But listen, folks, persecution has existed ever since the beginning of the church, and it still exists today. You and I sit here in a nice air-conditioned sanctuary. We don't have to worry about the police breaking through the doors and taking us off to prison because we're worshiping. We have that freedom. But today, as you and I sit in this comfortable place protected, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are also trying to gather. And they gather knowing that at any moment, their life might be taken. They might be imprisoned. They might be separated from their family. So persecution is the means, the first means that Jesus uses to carry out his degree. And, it, and it's... It's significant that the first place we find them when they scatter, these, new, these believers, from this persecution, we find them in Samaria. There's some significance to Samaria. Samaria was formed in the Old Testament times. The Bible tells us that when Rehoboam took the kingship of Israel over from Solomon, he made some bad decisions and there was a split in the kingdom. And the ten tribes in the northern part of Israel formed their own coalition and separated from the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was conquered and captured by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a practice when they captured a, a nation. They, what they would do is they would take a significant number of those inhabitants and they would make slaves and servants out of them and bring them back to Assyria. But they would leave a handful of those who were native to that particular territory they had conquered. And then they would bring in nations and ethnicities from other places in the, in the world and, and put them in that territory. So what you had when you had Samaria is you had Jews who had intermingled and married ethnicities that were not Jewish and so in the eyes of those who were pure Jews 
the Samaritans were mixed breeds. And they were looked down on. They were considered unclean. They were considered impure because their, their bloodline was not perfectly, purely Jewish. And it caused hatred on their part. The, the Jews hated Samaritans. I mean, they hated them to the, to the point that if they had to make a trip, rather than take the shortest route going through Samaria, they would go tremendous miles out of their way just to keep from setting foot on Samaritan Saul. And the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. They hated them because they'd been rejected. They even raised their own worship place at Mount Gerizim. And that, that even infuriated the Jews more because they were convinced Jerusalem was the only place you could really worship God. So it's significant. Crossed a very real cultural and ethnic boundary. But the second means that, that God uses and shows us in this passage is not only did He use the means of persecution, but He used a message to fulfill His decree. And it was the message, it says, Philip preached, proclaimed to them the Christ. You know, we often refer to Jesus and we use the name Jesus Christ. And Christ comes from the Greek term Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. And so when you preach Jesus Christ, you are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the message that Peter preached in Jerusalem. We heard that message a few weeks ago when he said this to those Jews in Jerusalem. He said, let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah. He is the anointed one that was promised, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then last week as the pastor took us through Stephen's long speech, Stephen ended his sermon by speaking to those, those in the Sanhedrin and those religious rulers, and he's called them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. The righteous one you have now betrayed and murdered. There was one message, and the message was Jesus. And now here's Philip, the deacon that was appointed among the seven, he is Jewish, and he preaches in, of all places, Samaria, where Jews are hated. And what does he proclaim? The message of Jesus. This Jesus, Christ, Him crucified. Because that's the message, people. That's the only message. The location may change. The culture may change. The social status may be different. The color of their skin may be different. But there's only one message that will save a soul, and the message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's the message we have this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, that's the message I offer to you. That's the hope I give you. If you want to be able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil and know that God is beside you, 
then the message you need to hear is this Jesus whom was crucified. He is Lord. And He is Christ. And He alone can forgive your sin and save your soul. So there was persecution. There was a message. And finally, our text tells us that to fulfill His decree, Jesus used the miracles of the Holy Spirit. The miracles give authority to the message. The miracles that were performed there were not to to be a show for Stephen. It was not to be a, a stamp of approval on Stephen himself, but to be a stamp of approval on the message that Stephen shared. Why does the Scripture, how, as the Scripture says, did a crowd of Samaritans who hated Jews with one accord, the Scripture says, with one mind. They paid attention to a Jewish deacon of all people. Why did they do that? Well, the Scripture says because the Holy Spirit cast out evil spirits and healed the lame. God used the miracles to authenticate and point to the message of Christ that was given. He still does that today. He still does. That's, just, that's the way the Holy Spirit works today. You say, well, I don't know. You know, I've never, I've never seen an evil spirit cast out of somebody. I, I've never been in a service where the, the lame was made to walk. I, I'm, and I'm a believer. I, I, I heard the message, yes, and you're the miracle. The greatest miracle that's ever happened, folks, is not a lame man being made to walk. It's not an evil spirit being cast out from somebody. It's not any of these signs. And one. The greatest miracle that ever takes place is when a sinner comes to faith in Christ and Jesus as his Savior and Lord. That's a miracle. The Scripture says in Ephesians, without Christ, before Christ, we're dead. <laughs> we're dead folks spiritually. We're separated from God. We're not, even, we're not only separated from Him, we don't like Him. <laughs> We're His enemy. God showed His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the miracle, folks, that the world needs to see today that will give authenticity to the message is the miracle of me and you who have come to faith in Christ and our lives being changed. That's the miracle that the world is looking for. It's you and I. And so our text ends in that section and says, because of what God did there, through the miracle and through the message and the proclamation of Christ, the Scripture says there was much joy in that city. Much joy. Folks, we ought to be a people of joy. There ought to be much joy in this place today. If you know Christ, there ought to be much joy in your heart. Your circumstances may be bad right now. There may be all kind of, of things that would weigh you down and be heavy on your heart, but you can still have joy if you know Jesus. Because joy is different from happiness. Happiness depends on happenings, circumstances. Joy is from the heart, and it comes from knowing Jesus. Well, the remainder of our chapter, I'm going to entitle... A tale of two worshipers. A tale of two worshipers. Let's move on to verse 9. 
read a few verses and see what we can find out about this first worshiper. Pick it up in verse 9. Our text says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so what does our text tell us about this one character named Simon? Well, the text says he's a magician. And not only is he a magician, but he's a, a very good one. Uh, he's so good that a text says that the people were amazed by the magic that he did. Text tells us that he was thought by the people to possess the power of God. In verse 10, it says, This man is the power of God that is called great. These people really, in essence, worshiped Simon. They worshiped him. He was so crafty with his magic that they felt like he had been. Gifted and sent by God. And then the scripture tells us something very strange about this magician who himself was worshipped and probably worshipped himself. Later texts were seem to indicate. It tells us that Simon appears to be among those who believed the gospel of Jesus preached by Philip. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But there's going to arise an issue with Simon, and we'll find as we go on through our text. In the next text, we find out that because of this news that these Samaritans had believed in Christ, that apostles send Peter and John to Samaria. Look at the account of it, picking up in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, who by the way, they had, they had stayed in Jerusalem, they did not scatter like the other believers did. When those apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them, in other words, sent to the Samaritans, Peter and John who came down and prayed for them, prayed for these converts, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. As we look at this text, let's ask this first question. Why, if the apostles had stayed in Jerusalem, why did they decide to send Peter and John to Samaria when they heard the news of the converts in Samaria? We have to remember that this is the first time since the death and resurrection of Christ, this is the first time that public confession and identification of believers with the death and resurrection of Jesus occurs outside of Israel. Outside of Israel. First time. And not only were these conversions outside the land of Israel, it was in a place that the Jews considered to be unclean and impure. Of all places for the gospel to spread and there to be converts, Samaria would have been the last place these Jewish believers would have thought that happened. And we have to remember, folks, as we travel through these early chapters of Acts, that we are reading an account of that which is happening at the beginning of a brand new era it's a new time in redemptive history it's the era of the church it's the era of the Holy Spirit for the first time since man fell in sin because Christ has come and met the standard of God through his perfect life and because Christ has come and paid the penalty and took the punishment of the wrath of God for man's sin and he's been raised from the dead for the first time. It's possible for God to place his spirit not just on his people, but to place his spirit within his people. And so it's a new time. And at this time, the apostles are the one who carry the authority for the church. Tori read from Matthew for you at the opening of our service. And if you'll remember that passage, Jesus had his disciples, had his apostles, chosen apostles before him. And what did he say? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of me having all the authority in heaven and earth, therefore you go and teach and preach and baptize. He placed the authority he had upon those apostles. 
And so these apostles are sent, Peter and John are sent, listen, to place authentication, authenticate, okay, I'll spit it out in a minute, (laughs) to authenticate what had happened to these Samaritans in their belief. Now, how do they do that? How do they place their authenticity on on what's happened? How, How do they do that? Well, the Scripture says they lay hands on them and pray And here's our first issue in this passage. It says that Peter and John came down and prayed for them, talking about these new Samaritan converts, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we have an issue, don't we? Romans 8 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So do we have a contradiction? Because the Scripture says they heard the message, they believed, They were even baptized. Well, how did that happen if they didn't have the Holy Spirit? Because Paul says you can't believe. You can't be a believer without the Holy Spirit. So do we have a contradiction? Well, let me assure you this morning, we don't have a contradiction. Because the Scripture is the very Word of very God. And He doesn't contradict Himself. So when we think there's a contradiction in the Word of God, it's because we don't have enough insight. We don't know what's going on. But I'm going to give you two, which I think is only the only two possibilities it can be in this, in this text. And I read, listen, I read a whole bunch in preparing this text from some men who are a whole lot smarter than Dolan Davis is. But they really all, all boil down to these two possibilities. And I'll give you the first one. The first first possibility is this that since this is a narrative in scripture it's an example of a text being descriptive rather than prescriptive you say Dolan what in the world do you mean by that well let me try to explain it this is a passage in which an event could be described That's not meant to imply a pattern or prescribe a continual practice. In all the rest of the New Testament, people believe and they're baptized in the Spirit at that moment of, of belief and then they publicly are baptized as a profession of what's already happened. So it's belief, simultaneously receive the Spirit, be baptized as a public confession but this could be an exception for this reason you can't put God in a box now remember the gospel has just been accepted for the first time outside Israel it's been accepted by people that God's people considered impure and unclean and so God sends these apostles Peter and John there to authenticate the belief 
of these Samaritans. It could be that in this particular case, God changes the order to put his stamp of approval on what has happened to these Samaritans who have believed the gospel. Now, I hope that doesn't confuse you. If it does, I'm sorry, but I'm going to give you another possibility. The second possibility is this. Notice that our text says this about the Holy Spirit. It says, He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It could be, folks, that they had received the Holy Spirit at the moment they believed. And it could be that what God was doing when He sent Peter and John to lay hands on them, it could be that when they laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit who was already within their lives was manifested in such a way that it was visible to those who saw them. That seems to be what the text indicates because it says, uh, it says in the text that Simon saw in verse 18, he saw that the Holy Spirit had fallen on those people. Isn't that what happened at Pentecost? When we started out our journey through Acts on the day of Pentecost, remember what happened? The Bible says that, that the Holy Spirit fell on those believers and they began to speak in languages that were not their own, that there were signs and wonders to the point that some of those looking on thought, these guys are drunk in the middle of the morning. So those are two possibilities. I'm not smart enough to tell you which is which, but I do know this that these people were saved and God placed His Spirit within them and it was evident that they had become believers in Christ. The question now becomes is what about Simon? The Scripture told us that Simon believed and yet Peter has to rebuke him because he wants to buy this gift of being able to put the Holy Spirit on folks. So we have to wrestle with this question was Simon's belief genuine? Did Simon really have saving faith? Did he just make a profession of faith without really possessing faith? And I don't believe I can take the text and prove to you one way or the other. But there's one thing for certain about Simon in this episode that the scripture makes clear. Whether his prior belief was genuine or not, or whether he just made a profession without actually having genuine faith, there's one thing we know for sure. His heart was not right. Verse 21, 22, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Listen to what Peter says. For your heart is not right before God. Folks, there's one truth here that's very, very clear. And not just clear here, but it's clear through all of Scripture. Listen to Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the truth that is so clear there, folks, and, and so clear through all of Scripture is this, that genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior takes place in the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's not just knowing facts about Jesus. It's not just even knowing that Jesus lived and was crucified and rose again. It's not just a mental acceptance. Genuine faith in Christ is a matter of the heart. And it changes the heart. Listen, friend, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that one can genuinely Believe and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit come into that heart and come into that life and not change that heart. All through the Old Testament they prophesied about hearts of stone being turned into hearts of flesh and that's what was meant. When somebody truly trusts Jesus, it's an issue of their heart and that person is going to change. A sinner an enemy of God, when they trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, one who's been spiritually dead, when they genuinely trust in Christ, it changes the heart. And that's why Peter rebuked Simon. He says, Simon, your heart's not right before God. It forces you and I to examine our hearts. Is our faith a matter of the heart? Do we believe in a heart that Christ died? Doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. Doesn't mean that we'll never sin again when Jesus changes our heart. But it does, it does mean we won't live in sin and enjoy it, I tell you that. And it does mean there'll be a love for God. There'll be a love for others. In 1 John, John says, if you know Christ, you will love others who know Christ. And listen, if you have a, if you have a problem with Worshiping and being around others who know Christ. Something's wrong with your heart. I don't have to make myself get up and come to... I don't come here just because I'm part-time staff and I get paid. I was coming way before I got put on the payroll. Why? I want to be around believers. I love to be around believers. I find joy in coming... I, find, I don't have to be paid to come to church. I want to worship God. Why? Not because there's anything good about me, but Jesus has come into my heart. He's changed my heart. And Simon had a heart problem. You see, salvation is free. It's, it, it's a free gift by faith alone. But listen, folks, as Luther said, it's not faith that is alone. Genuine faith produces good works. We like to quote... Ephesians 2, 8, 9, By grace are you saved through faith. But we need to read on. Verse 10 says, For you were created for good works in Christ Jesus. Well, we've got to move on. I'd like to camp a little longer, but we can't. Let's go to verse 26 and see our second worship real quick. Let me read the passage for you. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and so... Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He came to Jerusalem, listened to worship, 
And he was returning, seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Real quickly, we know this man's a eunuch. It means he had been physically operated on a way, in a way that he could not have physical intimacy with a female. He was a court official of Candace, Queen of Ethiopia. He had great responsibility. The scripture says he was in charge of all her treasure. But here's the most important thing we know about this Ethiopian. It says he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. He was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who was looking to the religion of the Jews. And he went to Jerusalem to worship. But because he was a eunuch, and because he was not a Jew, even though he traveled to Jerusalem, he would not be allowed in the temple because of his ethnicity and because he was a eunuch. He would have been considered unclean and impure. And the Jews would not allow him to go into the temple where supposedly the presence of God was. Well, our story ends with his life being changed because Philip follows the Holy Spirit real quickly. The angel instructs Philip where to go, rise and go to Gaza. The Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. He says, go over and join this chariot. Philip finds out where the eunuch is in his reading and his understanding. And what does he do? He proclaims the message of Jesus. He takes the Old Testament and he teaches the eunuch about Jesus. You say, well, how come he didn't take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? It hadn't been written yet. <laughs> Only Bible he had was the Old Testament. And listen, the topic of the Old Testament is the same as his New Testament is Jesus Christ. And he preached to him Jesus. The eunuch gives evidence that he believed because he asked to be baptized. And then listen to what it says last about the eunuch after Philip's carried away. It says the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Then say he went away happy. Happiness is entirely different from joy. Happiness depends on happenings. Got money in the bank, 
Wife's not fussing at you too bad. Youngins are not in jail. They didn't flunk school. That's happiness. Your bank account can be empty. The doctor could have given you bad news. Your youngins might be in jail. But you can have joy if you have Jesus. Because joy is a condition of the heart. And it comes from knowing the Savior. Philip followed the Holy Spirit. Somebody asked me this morning, said, Dolan, how do you, how, how do you follow the Holy Spirit? How, how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, real quickly, let me tell you this. We follow the Holy Spirit mainly through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. We follow the Holy Spirit when we take time to pray. Because prayer is not mainly us talking to God. Prayer is mainly us hearing from God. We follow the Holy Spirit when we do what we're doing this morning. When we gather as believers and feed off each other's faith. And listen, we follow the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit gives us opportunities to speak the message of the good news of Jesus. I have to be transparent with you this morning. I'm not where Philip was. I'm still seeking after it. I don't always take the opportunities. I'm not sensitive as I should be to the opportunities. But I want to be. And I hope we as a church want to be too. So in closing today, two questions. Have you genuinely in your heart of hearts and are you presently in your heart of hearts, trusting Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior? That's the first question and the most important. And the second is this. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, are you seeking to follow and obey the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you. If a Christian can't hear the Holy Spirit, that Christian is in a lot of trouble. I hope you're listening, and I hope I am too. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.